Well, this past week, um, as you all know, has, uh, has been another rough one uh, for our country. And Wednesday, we were all reminded again how broken and fragile that our world is, how little control we actually have over the events of our life. Wednesday's tragedy in Florida was the eighth uh, school shooting in which there was either death or injury um, in the United States in the first seven weeks of 2018. And one person responded on Twitter that they were in tears, this was on Thursday, because they'd just gotten a letter home from their, their preschoolers' school talking about kind of how they would handle a similar situation. Preschool. We live in a world where our own church has an active killer plan in place. That's what they call it now. And this is the world that our children are growing up in. And as we discuss um, this ministry of the new covenant, we have to keep in mind that new covenant or old, 6,000 years ago or today, our world is broken. Even after Jesus' death and resurrection and all the benefits that come from that act of love, it doesn't change the fact that our world and every human that occupies it is broken and hurting and in need of hope. New covenant, same old broken world. And we're going to talk more about that later on. For now, I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where we left off last week. It's page 1054. In your pew Bibles. Second Corinthians 4. Last Sunday, Justin walked you through this passage, which really kind of laid out what it looks like to be followers of Christ, what it looks like uh, to be ministers of this new covenant. Paul said that this treasure of the new covenant of grace has been housed in ordinary, fragile bodies of ours. He compared them to, to jars of clay where they used to store things in that were just so easily broken and so ordinary. He said that life will beat us down, that there will be times when we are uh, overcome and we, and we feel like we can't make it. Um, but despite that, he says that, that we have this power of the living God inside of us. And so today I want to pick up the narrative in verse 13 of chapter 4. So in verse 13, Paul says, It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. So he says, we believe, therefore we speak. What a great principle that, that faith creates the testimony. You see, Paul really believed that there was an eternal purpose to all the suffering that he was going through, that God wanted to use it for his glory, and so he spoke. And as we mentioned early on, earlier on in this letter, when we talked about that phrase, we do not lose heart, we're going to see it again today, Paul speaks this as a command. He says, we believe, therefore we speak. He doesn't say, 
the people that are talented at speaking speak, or you ought to speak, or it'd be a good idea that if you believe something, you should speak about it. He says, we believe, therefore we speak. He states it as an obligation of our calling as ministers. We all have a responsibility to verbally proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because remember, we talked about a couple weeks ago about Paul's own fears and, and, and insecurities in, in public speaking, right? He said, when I came to you, I came with great fear and trembling. And he said, I didn't come with wise and persuasive words. But, but Paul's own lack of talent didn't keep him from proclaiming what he knew to be true and what he knew other people needed to hear. So we speak regardless of the results, regardless of how it makes us feel, whether we enjoy it or not. We speak whether anybody responds, whether we get any pats on the back for it. We speak because the gospel is true and it's life-changing information for the world. And I love what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.16. He said, For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Peter and John, when they're arrested early on in the book of Acts, and they're brought before the Jewish leaders who are trying to tell them to stop preaching the gospel, right? Their response was this, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We can't help it. They were compelled. So Paul, Peter, John, they couldn't help themselves. Is that true of us? Has your life been so impacted by this new covenant of grace, this unbelievable love and mercy that God has for you that you can't help yourself but tell other people about it? If that's not true, then I would say you need to go deeper into the story. You need to pray that God would arrest your heart with a deeper understanding of exactly what it is God has done for you. Because if you begin to taste that, the power of that for your own life, you'll want it for other people, right? You'll be compelled to want to share that with those around you. And it's one thing to speak when it's well-received. A completely different thing to do it when you're persecuted and suffering for it, like Paul was. Because the gospel will offend people. It will offend people. And I was reminded of this the other night. It was the most bizarre situation I've been in in a long time. So we had Ash Wednesday service, right? Wednesday night, and if you weren't here, you missed out. It was so good. So we got the, the ash crosses on our forehead. So then I decided I'm gonna go to Hy-Vee go shopping, right? So I'm shopping around, getting the looks, you know, and I get to the meat counter place, the packaged meat, and um, there's this little older guy there, and he, he, he sees me coming up, and he, he looks at my forehead, and he said, what's that? And this lady next to me goes, well, it's Ash Wednesday. And then he turns to me, and he goes, well, your people killed my people. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> what did I just walk into? And um, so I figured out he was Jewish and um, basically um, started giving me uh, a lesson on European history 
over time, which I was a history major in college, so I was tracking with what he was saying. And, um, and talking about how the Jews didn't kill Jesus, the Romans really killed him, and, and really kind of going through this whole thing on the Roman Catholic Church and, and why they were corrupt. And I'm like, well, I'm not Catholic. And he's like, oh, will you people do this too? And so I could tell that he wasn't really open to a conversation per se. So, um, and he just talked about how the, you know, all men are evil and we'll all, if we can mess with one another, we will and blah, blah, blah. And the only line I got in in the whole conversation was this. I said, yes, that's why we need a savior. That's all I got. But so anyways, it was bizarre, but it was offensive. I didn't even speak the word Jesus. Just the cross was offensive. It's a great reminder. In verse 14, 14, what what language am I speaking? In verse 14 here, sounds like Mr. Ted Bomb, Carol Burnett, those of you that know. (laughs) Verse 14, Paul says, he starts off, he says, because we know, because we know. See, Paul is sure of this. That all of his sufferings, the beatings, the imprisonment, all of it was a prelude to his resurrection. He's sure. He knew. And because he knew, he spoke. And it reminds me of the story of Job in the Old Testament. If you've never read about Job, it's an amazing book to read. I don't have the time to tell you the whole story, but suffice it to say that Job was a godly man. And through a series of events... Um, everything was taken from him, his, his family, his wealth, his health, everything was stripped bare. And it, it's really a heartbreaking story to read. Yet Job could still say in chapter 19, verses 25 and 26, he said, I know my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. This is somebody whose everything has been taken away. Yet I know my Redeemer lives. Man. And and we've all been through different stuff. And and sometimes it's really hard in the face of the sufferings that we experience here on the earth to be able to say things like that. And sometimes we need to be a little bit more like the man in, in Mark chapter 9 who comes to Jesus with this son of his that's been possessed by a demon and, you know, thrashing about and foaming at the mouth and hurting himself. And, and he says to Jesus, if you can, you know, you could heal him. And Jesus says, if I can, everything is possible with God. To which the man replies, I do believe. Help my unbelief. You ever feel like that? Man, God, I I really want to believe that you're going to intervene here or that you're going to heal here or you're going to do something miraculous here. Help that part of me that really, if I'm honest, is really kind of unbelieving and struggling. Verse 15, he says, all of this is for your benefit. All what? What's he talking about? All what is for your benefit? (laughs) 
Go to work, folks. Yes. Okay, yeah, everything we get to go through in life or enjoy. Yes, what else? What's he referring to? All this what? Yeah. All of his trials? Yeah, all of his struggles? Good. It's kind of just summing up, guys. Everything that I've been through, right? The stuff Justin talked about last week, the beatings and the floggings and all of that is for your benefit, And the end result, the purpose behind every effort of Paul's life was that thanksgiving would overflow the glory of God. Because for Paul, it was all about God's glory and not his own. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, he wrote this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Right? That's a verse that a lot of us memorized growing up. And it's a great question to check ourselves with when we're engaging in doing things for God, doing good works. Whether you're a young life leader or your children's ministry or whatever you're doing, to ask yourself, am I doing this for God's glory or for my own? Do I like the way this makes me feel? The pats on the back and the, oh, everybody knows my name, and, or am I more concerned with God getting the glory? I've needed to ask myself that in a lot of times. You see, Paul's goal in ministry was never his comfort, never his reputation, never his popularity, never his prosperity, never really even whether people responded and, and it led to salvation. Paul's goal is that God would receive the glory due his name. And verse 16 begins with a very familiar command that we've heard before in this chapter where he says, therefore we do not lose heart. So we've been given this ministry of receiving and then declaring this new covenant of grace. And with that, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, with this glorious ministry comes hardship and trials. With this ministry comes hardship and trials. There's no other way about it. There's no loophole, no easier side path to it. Why? Because we have an enemy. We have an enemy. And while we're trying to lead people to this new understanding of this ministry of grace, the enemy is working very hard to keep people chained to the law, to keep them slaved to shame and to guilt and to doubt and to duty. And it's a war. And that's why there's suffering and trials. We shouldn't be surprised that there's an enemy that's working hard against us. And that enemy, when we're trying to spread this new covenant knowledge, he will press on us. He will perplex us. He will strike us down. Try to. He will persecute us. But we do not lose heart because the power for this ministry is from God and not from us. And the fact that he would use these fragile jars of clay to spread everywhere the aroma of Christ ought to fill us 
with an overwhelming sense of just humility, just humbleness of like, God, how unbelievable that you would use me to, to speak these words of grace to other people, to give hope to other people as I point them to Christ and to be able to see change and transform lives. We do not lose heart. So what's the secret? What are the keys to endurance in this ministry? Let's look at what he says in verses 16 through 18. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let me ask you a question, and we're going to, you guys set this up to be able to type up on the screen? All right, Brandon. So I want to ask you guys this question. What's true about the realities of this world and the bodies we live in? So that's really kind of two different questions in one. You can answer either part. What is true about the realities of this world and these bodies we live in? Fire away. Yes, Jay. Hundred percent of the people are gonna die. Yes. What else? Yeah. It's all temporary. It's all temporary. Great. What's satisfying and what's not satisfying? Okay, we're gonna wrestle with with being satisfied. The what? The devil is alive and well. Okay. How are we doing back there? <laughs> Slow down. All right. We're still stuck on 100 people and percent of the people die. So, so we said things are temporary. Okay, your, your wife said that actually, Brandon. You got to get that down. Yes. Okay. He said, we're going to be, we're going to be struggling with, with being satisfied or what satisfies us. He said, the devil is alive and well. What else? Did you have something, Tess? No. Anybody else? Yeah. You're going to be hurt. Yes. What else? Yeah. No matter how hard we try to order things in our life, we'll never get it completely right. I don't even know how you want to put that. You don't have to get all these down, but just do the best you can. Yes, Angie. Right. Our bodies fail, and we fail other people. Hmm? We're broken, and the world's broken. Great. Good job. All right. So guys, when we look at this, in, in our clear moments, right, but we, we could probably sit here and list a lot of things like this that we know are true, and really the, the human experience is about learning how to cope with this, 
How do you cope with that? How do you cope with the fact that your body is decaying and broken while also coping with the fact that you live in a world that is decaying and broken? Both those things are true. And some people deal with those realities with self-help, positive thinking, willing themselves to overcome any obstacle you know they can find. Other people deal with that with kind of what Phil was talking about, some kind of illusion of control. If I can just orchestrate and do this and manipulate that and mm, I'll make it work. While others don't cope with it very well. And instead of maybe fighting, they, they yield. And they yield to addictions, escapism, avoidance, kind of just sticking your head in the sand, materialism. Some people can't cope very well at all and just decide that this world isn't worth living in. And if you think about it, all of humanity kind of lives on this razor-thin edge right there of figuring out, you know, which path am I going to take when it comes to this whole coping question? When the painful realities of this world are just being fired at us. So starting in verse 16, it's almost like Paul kind of anticipates a question. Like if you look back over chapter 4 when he's describing kind of what his life and ministry has been like, right? All that stuff about being hard-pressed and persecuted and struck down and carrying around in us the, us the death of Jesus. It almost begs the question, how do we not lose heart? How do we not lose heart? This sounds horrible. Like who signs up for this life? So let's wrap this up. Paul lays out several secrets, I think, to navigating life in a way that keeps us from losing heart. First, in verse 16, Paul says that we have to value our spiritual life over our physical life. We have to value our spiritual life over our physical life. Keep in mind the reality of Paul's body. As Justin described last week, right, the, the number of beatings and being stoned near to death, and, and, and being flogged, having the skin ripped off his back. I'm sure that Paul, when he walked around, he bore the scars of that stuff, and, and the trauma that his body had been through. Yet inwardly, Paul says, I'm being renewed day by day. On the outside, I might even be hideous to look at, but inwardly, and you saw it, if you know enough about kind of Paul's relationships over time, he became more loving, more forgiving, more gracious towards people that he might have not been quite as gracious of earlier in his life. When we first started Wellspring, I had a part-time job because um, there weren't many people sitting out there, okay? So I was a part-time hospice chaplain. And it was a stretch for me. 
Um, but we had clients, and so I had to visit all of my clients once a month. And so I would go to various nursing homes primarily. Sometimes people were in-home, but um, especially in the nursing homes, um, I would visit um, a lot of women um, who were old, 85, 90, 95 plus years old. And I would walk into their rooms, and I you know, got to know them over time, and their bodies were a wreck, some of them. I mean, they could hardly move, you know, whether it's arthritis or whatever else. But, you know, it never failed that when I would come, they would kind of muster the, the courage to kind of get up or get in the wheelchair or whatever and just talk to me. And especially those that were Christians, I would sit there and they would ask me about my life. And they would, they would ask me about the church and what's going on and can I pray for you? And I would walk out of their rooms the able-bodied person, the one that was blessed. Because they'd learned the secret over time that appearances can be deceiving. Do we spend as much time developing our inner man as we do our outer? Because all of us are going to lose our physical capabilities at some point if we live long enough. And when we do, what will we have to offer? When we physically might not be able to do anything for anybody else, will we have nurtured and trained our hearts so that we have still something to give, to give strength to people in a different way? When you think about how much time people put into exercise in our society, no offense, CrossFitters, runners like myself, do we put that same or more energy into developing our heart and our inner person? Secondly, in verse 17, Paul says that we need to value the future over the present. He calls the hardships that we endure on this earth light and momentary troubles. If Paul can look at his own hardships, nearly beaten to death on multiple occasions, imprisoned on multiple occasions, betrayed and left by friends out in the mission field time and again, if he calls those light and momentary, what does that mean for our problems and our troubles? We need some perspective, don't we? I just spent five days in Haiti last week. Fourth time I think I've been there in my life. That's a reality check, folks. It is by far the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, our part of the world here. And when you go there and you see um, the complete lack of infrastructure, so no running water, no electricity unless you have a generator, um, no sewer system, no trash pickup, nothing, very little to no health care, very little to no jobs. And if you do have a job, the average yearly, yearly income is $400. The day wage at a, at a factory making t-shirts all day long $3.40 a day. And when you see 
people living in that, and you know, I looked up this week and talked about it while I was there, the life expectancy of a male in Haiti is about 60 years, about 18 years less than the United States, mainly because their organs at some point just kind of shut down because their liver kidneys have been trying to filter out the bacteria of contaminated water their whole life, and at some point it just can't do it anymore. Spend a few days with some pastors in Haiti, and it makes me think twice before I complain about anything that I do here, any problem that we might have at Wellspring. It's perspective. Paul says that these small bumps in the road that we're enduring here, if we allow them to, can really achieve something eternal in us that far outweighs any earthly thing that we're going through. Look at how Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, In all this we greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. We need perspective here in America, folks. And part of the problem, part of our problem in this country at least, is that it appears like we have the power to orchestrate and control life through our choices. That's the illusion. In a way that might allow us to navigate life with limited hardships, mitigating the pain. That there's a path through that. You see, most of the world doesn't live under that same illusion. It's all too clear, the suffering and the lack of power and control they have to do anything about it. And so that changes the way they perceive things. And we need a community around us to help remind us of the value of hardships. That struggle and pain and trials does something in us. It's, it's meant, it's put there by God. It's allowed by him to shape our character, to help us mature, as my children love the way I pronounce that word. It's mature, not mature. Mature. Look it up. <laughs> we need some older and wiser people around us, some people who have some scars, who've been through some things, who can help remind us of this truth, that can stress to us the importance of valuing our future glory over our present circumstances. Finally, in verse 18, Paul says that we need to value the eternal over the temporary. What is invisible over the visible. We just sang a song about that, right? Praise the invisible. He says, so we, so Paul is including himself in this, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen. That is so hard, isn't it? It's hard on two levels. One, it's hard to just fix our eyes, period, because we're such a distracted culture, right? I've talked about before when I talk to my kids and I really want them to listen, I cut my hands around their eyes, right? Look at me. And I feel like God wants to do that to us sometimes, like fix your eyes, so for one, it's hard to, f- to fix our eyes. It's so hard to not focus on what we can just see. 
Think about what Paul has been through. I'm sure he had to remind himself of this truth when he was sitting in jail again. When he was left for dead outside the city walls again. Paul, fix your eyes. (laughs) Don't focus on your present circumstances and what you can just see right now as you're aching and moaning (laughs) from your broken bones for preaching the gospel. Well, not only was Wednesday's school shooting heavy on my heart this week, as I'm sure it was on many of yours, but Thursday I was writing, excuse me, I was writing in my prayer journal, and I I write my prayers out, because if I don't, I lose my mind. Um, And so I'm writing, and God is just flooding my mind with people to pray for. And so I'm just like furiously trying to keep up with, with the people that God is putting on my heart. And it began to feel pretty overwhelming. Right? Even in a country where we've got so much more than most of the world, I'm writing about divorce. And I'm writing about people I know whose marriages are in really fragile places and who have lost people that they love and who have physical ailments and relational pains and anxiety issues and depression. And I'm 48 years old and have been following Christ over 30 years and it struck me once again as I was writing that this is not our home. And we get disillusioned when we try to make it our home. Like this is our destination. This is the place where we need to be happy. It's not. And it never will be. Our bodies and our world are broken. And try as we might, we're never going to change that reality. Legislation's not going to change it. Any attempt that we have to, you know, make our bodies as healthy as they can be, 100% of you are still going to die. Nothing's going to change that. The pain and the heartache of this world will continue to take jabs at us. Just, and you feel like you're a punching bag sometimes. And if you let it, it's very easy to lose heart. Very easy. Which in turn will lead us to be ineffective at bringing the hope of the new covenant to a world that desperately needs to hear it. We have to help one another not lose heart. We have to help one another fix our eyes, fix our eyes on the spiritual, fix our eyes on the future, fix our eyes on the eternal, the invisible, Christ in us that gives us hope so we can speak what's true because we are compelled by God's love and we can't help ourselves. And it takes a community to do that. I have to surround myself that that remind me, Bob, you can't lose heart. Right? Fix your eyes. Fix your eyes. And as we come to the communion table, guys, it's another reminder. It's an opportunity to fix our eyes on what is true. That even though Jesus' body was broken like us, 
poured out like ours? And it seemed like the cross was defeat. It seemed like all hope was lost. There was resurrection. There's hope. And when we eat of that, we partake of that, and we become ministers alongside Jesus of that new covenant. And so as we come to the table today, fix our eyes on what we know is true, (laughs) that even though our bodies are wasting away inwardly, we are being transformed more and more into the image of God, right? A couple weeks ago, we looked at Paul said, with ever-increasing glory, degree by degree, what's true is that we're being shaped and formed to the image of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we 